Hello and welcome to the official podcast of Palate Exposure, featuring Ilona Thompson, a podcast for those seeking the ultimate in wine, food, and travel. Each week, she interviews winemakers, chefs, celebrities, and a variety of guests that shape the way we enjoy life. And then there's a little bit of Cab Franc and some uh, uh, Petit Fredot. It changes up a little bit with each vintage. Mm-hmm. Um, we have moved our sourcing around a bit, but now with the 2016 vintage, we, we're, we're coming into more longer term contracts. So with the current release of the Mia Madre, the 16, we have um, some Cabernet from Bextoffer's George III Vineyard in Rutherford. Wow, such a storied property. Yeah, yeah. The uh, Cab Franc was a stagecoach up on the Vaca Mountains on the east side. Oh, another phenomenal vineyard. <clears throat> yes. And the Malbec is, is Coombsville. So that's, those are the players um, in the current release of the, the 2016 Mia Madre. And the Cab takes the lead in this one. I have a funny story, actually, about um, the first vintage. I kept telling my winemaker at the time, Anne, I said, all right, this is a cab blend. <clears throat> but that Malbec kept wanting to be the star of the show in this, in the, <laughs> in this uh, vintage. So I said, oh, we kept doing all these trial blends. I said, oh, no, I think there's too much Malbec. You know, that's what I'm tasting. This must be a cab blend. So after, I don't know, two or three trial blends, she said, all right, we're going to do a double blind blending with you because you just need to not know what you're drinking and we're just going to pick what you like what you're tasting so i'm like okay so her and her assistant winemaker we sat down they poured blind all of the components and then they started uh, doing trial blends right there in the room so they kept doing something they wouldn't tell me what they were and they just kept feeding me samples and we'd all make our notes and and after I don't know, about an hour, we said, okay, what's everybody's favorite tr- blend? <clears throat> we all agreed on what our favorite blend was. It was 50% Malbec. <laughs> so I was like, okay, let it be. Let it be. So Malbec was the lead varietal in that vintage. And it's still there in different percentages. But now this current re- release is uh, more uh, Cabernet leading. Now, what a, a fantastic portfolio. First of all, I have to admit that I haven't had a Chardonnay yet, and I do plan to change that without a doubt. But the way you describe it, it the character of the wine clearly emerges. I mean, uh, I just I loved um, the way you referred to it. I almost like had this image of a really beautiful woman uh, with too much makeup when you spoke of you know the over oaked examples and clearly you, you gravitate way away from that but there's that elegance that vineyard voice that comes through um, Chardonnay tends to be uh, one of the varietals that takes on the the style probably more than any other right it's that canvas that lends itself um, but it still doesn't mean that it's not identifiable as a sense of place and that's what you're trying to highlight right i'm really excited to try it um and your reds again i mean it's so interesting that you led the wine to lead you to the final conclusion to the final blend you didn't force it you didn't 
come come at it from this is the components that I want to see and this is the proportions and this is kind of my vision for it. You let the wine guide you. Yeah, you have to. There's a, that's a, there's an infinite amount of combinations in this when you start blending different varietals together. Uh, and so, you know, that's that's the talent of the winemakers. They they understand how things work together and and what they're going to taste like, you know, in two years from now. So they they have that more of that knowledge than I do. I just know what I'm tasting at the moment, and and you know, you can figure out. If it's, yeah, if you like it now, out of the barrel, you'll like it, you know, in a couple of years from now. But it is, um, it is an interesting process to go through. It, you know, this is where the art and science come together uh, in the blending sessions. And a little drop of a certain varietal can change the taste of the wine immensely. So you just never know until you actually sit down and taste it. And that's the only way you can make it happen. There is no formula. You do. We do. We we let the wine lead lead the lead the way. It is such a beautiful thing about wine that every vintage you presented with new set of challenges, not just in the vineyard, but really in, during the blending sessions, because no two are ever the same. So no. uh, that's what keeps it exciting, but also must be a little nerve wracking when you're trying to coax maximum potential out of it, and it's not necessarily working with you the way you thought it would. Um, as closely as involved you are in, in every aspect, um, it has to be so personal to you. You know, you have, this is your wine. This is your baby. It is. It is. And, and, um, and there's, you know, there are lots of different barrels, types of barrels you can use. We still use all French oak and we use a combination of different coopers, uh, and, and different toast levels. But, uh, you know, those things are all it's it's overwhelming for me that's why i could never be the actual winemaker because i i just you know you you learn from experience and, and just knowing what barrels are going to work with what varietals and what style of wine it there's a there's a lot of moving parts but there is one varietal in this portfolio that will make you crazy and that's and that's the pinot <laughs> I bet. <laughs> oh my gosh. Pinot Noir is a wild child. And there's just something about Pinot Noir, Pinot Noir to me. You know, people, I, I remember having this conversation with a wine critic. He called up to just flesh out a conversation about Pinot Noir that he was writing about. And he said, why do you like Pinot Noir? And I said, well... It's a very emotional wine. I think it's a very sensual wine. And there's just something silky and delicious and compelling about it. It's hard to describe, but it, it really is one of my more emotional wines. But in the cellar, it's wild. It's a roller coaster. I mean, you talk to any winemaker that makes Pinot Noir and they say, of all the varietals, this is the one that you can't sleep at night. Because one minute you'll taste it and it's delicious. A month later, you think, oh my gosh, what happened to my wine? And then you just have to take a deep breath and walk away. And then come back a month later and you taste it again. You're like, oh, there it is. It's back. But it just goes through these crazy cycles during the aging process. And it, it makes you a nervous wreck. But at the end, it's all worth it. I mean, I, I, my Pinot's coming from Sonoma, 
I, I jumped over the border uh, because I sort of Pinot is not widely grown here in the Napa side. Mostly it's in Carneros and the vineyards that I would like to work with here are fully contracted on long-term basis. So that really pushed me over to Sonoma. Mm -hmm. And I just stumbled, really stumbled across this vineyard. I uh, started looking for some fruit and, you know, when you're looking for fruit, you just call people up and tell them what you're looking for. And, uh, somehow it magically happens. So I, I, I got a lead on a vineyard in the Green Valley of the Russian River. I don't know if everybody's familiar with that area, but Russian River of Sonoma is a pretty large sub-ADA. And, and Green Valley is a sub of the sub. <laughs> so it's the only sub-sub-ADA I, I know of. In cooler but, climate, right? It's cooler climate. Um, uh, Joy Sterling. Uh, of course, Iron Horse, yes. Yes, Iron Horse led the way. Uh, their vineyards are located in the Green Valley. And of course, making sparkling wine, that's prime weather for growing Chardonnay and, and Pinot. So she went through all the hoops uh, to create this sub-ADA within a sub-ADA. So it's on the very western edge of the Russian River. So it's, oh, it's, it has a very Sonoma Coast uh, personality. Mm -hmm. uh, Sonoma, mm -hmm. yeah, Sonoma Coast AVAs. This vineyard is called Bootleggers Hill. Uh, it's got some elevation. It's a stunning vineyard. I walked onto that property and I said, I don't want to leave. It's just, <laughs> it's just this like sort of rolling hills and then you get up into this knoll and on a clear day, I was like standing up there with the vineyard manager and I looked out across the valley towards the east and I said, what's that mountain over there? And he said, that's Mount St. Helena. Oh I'm God. like, oh my God, that's in my front yard. So when you get, when you're driving to these vineyards, you're just like winding through these roads and you don't know where you are. And I get up there and as the crow flies, it was like lined up with my house, which is so weird. But I love that vineyard. They, they, um, it's it was planted and, and it's farmed by a gentleman called uh, by the name of Charlie Chenoweth. And Charlie's legend, yeah. Charlie Charlie grew up in Green Valley, which is you know about as big as a quarter. And uh, born and raised, his family was in in uh, fruit orchards and then converted to grapes. So he planted this vineyard with um, uh, with with. Michael Brown from Costa Brown in mind, and he was, uh, he was, they were custom planting for Costa Brown. So it's about 30 acres. They planted a bunch of different um, clones of Sauvignon or of uh, Pinot Noir. So there's about eight different clones in that vineyard. And when I found this vineyard, it was in August. We were, the fruit was ripe enough that you could taste it and, and get a sense of what it is. So my winemaker and I, we walked through, he said, here's the, here's the blocks that we have available of, of, of these clones. So we walked through, we made our notes and um, we sort of locked in on uh, four or five different clones that we wanted to work with. Mm -hmm. So he said, well, you know, Costa Brown has these clones from last harvest in the barrel, in neutral oak barrels. He said, do you want to go back to the winery and taste 
last year's vintage in neutral oak? I said, uh, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so we did. We went back. We went to the winery, tasted the clones that we had chosen in the vineyard, from and and from and, and taste the wine from the previous year, and it all lined up. I mean, it all it was exactly what we were tasting in the vineyard. So that locked us into that vineyard, and we've been working with it since 2013. Uh, and then 2016, I need a little bit more fruit because I was only getting a few hundred cases. So I asked Charlie uh, if he had any other vineyards we could work with, and. So he introduced us to his, his friend, Earl Stevens. I love Earl. He's like one of my favorite growers. And he's also in Green Valley. So I'm, I'm locked into Green Valley pretty much for, for my sourcing. And Earl had some more clones available there. So I have a selection of probably five or six different clones in this, in this vintage. So it's just, they work, they play really well together. And I think clones are like really important um component to making Pinot Noir because they all have very distinctly different personalities and people don't always understand clones or what they are and I talk about them a lot so I usually compare it to roses so roses are roses grapes are grapes but there are lots of varietals of roses and they all look different and they smell different and 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 so that's how I describe clones in Pinot Noir or clones in any great analogy is that it's a it's a great but it has a different personality and you know that it has it could be it could be fruitier it could be sweeter it could be juicy it could be more acidic it could be more tannic there's just all these components that you can taste in the fruit in the vineyard so we kept them all separate we keep them all separate during harvest and 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 the aging process and then we do our blends, and uh, voila, it's Pinot. Well, yeah, I mean, again, highlighting the pedigree, every single vineyard you describe um, has notoriety, quite frankly, but more importantly, the farmers that tend to those vineyards, I mean, those are very well-known names in, in the nerd part of our industry. I mean, yeah. you certainly have met Charlie Chenoweth, and I know what a legend he is, um, and not just local. People just don't realize um, how important this stuff is consciously, but all they should care about is the delicious wine, so I forgive them. But um, the, you know, the clonal selection, there's so many decisions that go into that, and uh, you know, really a lot of it was experimental because you don't know until the vine is on the ground and performing, really, if you made precise choices I and mean, you can you know dig soil samples and uh, do comparative tasting you can do a range of things but at the end of the day you won't know until you really know and the fact that you got this validation both on the vine and in the cellar and that's how you made your choices that's really instructive to me um you know pinot as you said is a finicky they call it a heartbreak grape for a reason and the fact that you pursued it that you wanted to have that in the portfolio is also really interesting to me because it's it's pretty nerve-wracking um and just listening to you talk about the range um of what you know you you chose to engage in from vineyard architecture literally laying out a vineyard which brings about a whole set of complexities. I mean, you have to think of things like, what is it gonna look like 100 years from now? 
you know, because if you really are looking to create a sustainable, uh, you know, piece of land to create, you know, the um, generational piece of land, the vineyard, you have to wear a very different hat as opposed to just maybe maximizing. So the, the levels of complexity is literally endless there. So that alone is such a formidable challenge. And then for you to scout the vineyards, um, you know, even as far as Sonoma, it seems like every time there's a challenge, you rise to it. And uh, I don't know if you guys heard, there was a little tell in what um, Karen has said. He said, I needed more fruit. Well, to me, you were selling a lot of wine. So clearly the public fell in love with your wines. Otherwise you couldn't make more. You couldn't go out and source more. Exactly. And, and even the Pinot is only, you know, four or 500 cases. Um, it, you know, in my world, it's micro winemaking. It's, you know, you start with a couple hundred cases and you get to know a vineyard. You know, when we when we start working with a new vineyard, it is like dating. Uh, you, you, you have to like see how things go for the first year, if you like each other and uh, if they're farming the way you want them to farm and uh, you're getting what you want and it's a mutual uh, benefit um, relationship. So it, it is. So each, you know, I find that in the much earlier years of grape contracting in Napa Valley, growers were typically looking for long-term contracts right away. Uh, but that's evolved to just kind of the opposite now. Everybody wants to start with a one-year contract mm -hmm. um, in most cases for that reason. We're dating. So let's start with the one year and see how it goes and see if it, everybody's happy with what they're getting and how things are going. Uh, and the growers that we work with are super high end. I mean, these, this fruit is expensive and it's well farmed. And, you know, the, I, I know the vineyard managers. I, I know their quality. I know who else they're uh, growing for and who else is making wine in those vineyards. So we don't have to give much of any input to the to the team about how the grapes you know the vineyards are being farmed and that's jennifer's specialty as well so if she sees something that maybe this block because we have we we contract by rows so we have a section of a vineyard and we can manage that the way we want to a certain extent but honestly with the growers that we're working with we don't really need to worry about it uh, and each year is different. Something might be happening that you don't, you know, you don't want to happen. So you bring that to their attention. But uh, overall, they know what they're doing. We don't need to tell them how to do their jobs. And what I started doing a couple years ago was I have a, I have a probably a dozen growers by now, I think. And I said, all right, I want them all to come to lunch, and we're going to sit. And we're gonna we're gonna taste all the wines together and have a nice lunch, and celebrate them uh, because they, they we wouldn't be here without our growers and without their quality of work that they do. So it was so much fun. The first year they're like, "Wow, this is really fun. Can we do this again?" So now we're making it an annual lunch. We do it in February when it's not so busy. Uh, they get to taste all the wines, they have a nice meal, we get to chat with each other, they all get to know each other because they don't necessarily. And, um, and then I send them home with a couple bottles uh, as well. So it's, it's just a nice way to appreciate them and to 
solidify those relationships. And being nice to people goes a long way. <laughs> Let me tell you. The simple truth. Yeah. Again, tying it to the times, I hope the takeaway is that let's be nicer to each other. Even small things like don't, you know, throw daggers in your barista's face, you know, look death stairs when your coffee doesn't drop on the counter that quickly. Just small stuff. Yeah. If we all treated each other better, the world would be a better place. I agree. Um, and, you know, for you, you're so connected to this community, and I take so much heart um, in you know, the relationships that you've formed and nurtured. I mean, the more I got to know you and your story, the more this picture emerged. This is a wine made by, or a portfolio of wines, um, to be more accurate, um, by the insider's insider. Hmm. <laughs> you, have, you have had such immense presence in all the aspects of the business. You have them all covered. And so the level of attention to detail and thoughtfulness in every single aspect of it is almost infinite. So, well, well, thank you for that. I appreciate that. I, I just do what I love to do, and I don't really think too much about it. Uh, you know, and being a woman in sort of a man's world, it doesn't bother me at all uh, because there are more women coming online. Watch out, men. I'm coming after you. <laughs> but, um, but you know, I grew up with two older brothers. I grew up around boys. So if I find somebody, you know, I get this question a lot being a female in this business. It's like, well, how do men treat you? Blah, blah, blah. I said, well, if I run across somebody that wants to be that way and, and treat me badly, then I just eliminate them from my life. It's, you know, I, you just like, okay, I get who you are. This is not going to work. I'm moving on. So I'll go find somebody else that can do what I've hired you to do or want you to do. So, I, you know, it's just, it's just, I just eliminate it from my life. So I, I don't need that. I like to be in this business is a happy business. People are here when they come to Napa and people that work in this business love what they do and they have a passion about it. And everybody is very supportive. And this is part of what I love about Napa Valley is Good times, bad times, everybody is supporting each other. When I first started my brand, my colleagues and friends all bought wine to help me get started. And when a wise friend of mine told me, you can depend on your friends for the first vintage, but then you need to go out and find real customers afterwards. So, you know, and this just takes years because I didn't have a tasting room. And um, I just had to find people organically and through word of mouth. And so that's how the business has, has grown over the years. But I, I appreciate your words. That's very kind of you. I don't really think about what I've done and what I've accomplished. I just, I'm just doing what I love to do. It's, it's just you know, part of my soul. There's that transference. It shows in your work. The wine that I've had from you are so delicious and elegant and they tell the stories, um, which is what I'm attracted to the most in a wine. It, it has to be a storyteller. It has to be a companion. Um, and you are certainly deliver in spades. And the background of that is clearly what we learned today. And we answered the why question. Why is this important? And the importance in this of this bottled effort and sometimes poetry is the fact that behind it, there's so much intentionality, there's so much heart, there's so much hard work, 
it all culminates in it. Uh, because I started with Sauvignon Blanc and Pinot Noir and everybody thought I was crazy because I should be making Chardonnay and Cabernet, it took me a while to get to the Chardonnay, Cabernet mm -hmm. varietals. Mm -hmm. And so in 2015, uh, I started my cab project. And I, part of it was uh, just waiting for the right opportunity, finding a vineyard that I, that I could love, like all the rest of them. Uh, and a grower and a farmer uh, that I trusted in their in their capabilities to grow the quality of grapes that I was looking for. So in 2015, a friend of mine who's a state manager for Meteor Vineyards down in Coombsville mm -hmm. called and he said, I know your style of wine. I know what you like. We have some fruit. We have some cabernet. Just came available and you need to buy it i'm like oh okay of course i had to take a deep breath you know fruit's expensive and i said all right i feel here we go back to the intuition i could have said oh no i can't afford it it's not the right time i said okay i'll figure out how to pay for it later and so i did it i launched the 2015 inaugural vintage of the cabernet from meteor vineyards and it is 100 percent cabernet and it's farmed by a dear friend, a vineyard manager, viticulturist by the name of Mike Wolf. Mike has been in the valley for many years and he used to farm my uh, previous vineyard up on the East St. Helena Hills. Um, and, and so he said, you know, this fruit is very different than, than most. It's, it's located on a very rocky knoll in Coombsville. So it's a cool area, a different kind of cool than Carneros. So it still gets some influences from the bay, but the soils are much different. And it's 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 rockier soil, well drained, which Cabernet loves. There's only three different clones of Cabernet planted in that vineyard: clone seven, clone four, and three three seven. And that might not mean anything to anybody, but it does to us. So <clears throat> we have a 50-50 blend of the clone four and the clone seven, and and people will ask me what what's the difference between those two and in that vineyard for me the clone four is the sort of the more playful sexier juicier fruity part of the blend where the the um, clone seven is a bit more serious and the more structured grape so the blend of them together is super delicious and they just it just works out and of course Jennifer's magic touch uh, making Cabernet certainly helps. And she was familiar with that vineyard uh, before I started buying fruit. She was using fruit from that vineyard for another client. So she knew the vineyard. We talked about it ahead of time. I'm like, okay, well, you know, we have this opportunity. Should we do it? And she said, yes. So we did it. And uh, the first vintage was 2015, which was a, a, a difficult growing season that year in the because of weather issues and we had low low gave us low yield so i only got maybe 150 cases 125 cases that year um but it's super delicious it just wasn't very much of it but now our current release is 2016 we just released uh, recently super small production a state uh vineyard designated wine will always be a vineyard designated wine i have a contract uh a long-term contract and I have sections of that vineyard for each clone 
and whatever I get that year is what I get. So, you know, if, if, it's a, if it's a bountiful year, I'll have more wine. If it's not so much, I have less wine, but it will always be a vineyard designated wine. And uh, there's just some really special characteristics to that vineyard. And the wine is really inky in color. It, uh, it, and everybody that makes Cabernet from that vineyard is the same thing. It's just a, a really dark, inky color to it. And people think, oh, you must have some Petit Fredot in there. I'm like, mm-mm. That's the, that's 100% Cabernet. And um, I can't wait for you to try it as well as everybody else. So that's the Cabernet. I am now chomping at the bit. So first of all, you may not have heard the name Mike Wolf, but I know if you're a wine lover, especially in, you know, from Napa Valley, you've had his wines. What I mean by that is that he's a sage, he's a Yoda, the Yoda yes. of viticulture. Uh, I've had the opportunity to sit down for an interview with him, which you guys really should listen to. And that's not a self-promotional comment. He just is that wise. You'll learn a ton. He's been uh, working on and off kind of with Andy Baxdofer for decades. We're talking three decades. He has his own viticultural management company. He's really the source um, of all viticultural wisdom and just the depth are astounding. So the fact that he's farming that vineyard in and of itself is a huge endorsement. And the characters that you described, um, I mean, my God, who doesn't love a big inky cab? And by big, I don't mean overwhelming. By big, I mean sizable. Um, yeah. So I, I am so chomping at the bit um, to get well, a sample of that. Yeah, well, we'll sit down and taste when the time is right. But what the, the, what we were going for with this Cabernet, so. Mike planted this vineyard and it, it's, it, he told all the buyers, he said he had a hard time selling grapes when they first planted this vineyard because he was very honest with everybody. He said, if you're looking for a big, powerful, in your face, Cabernet style of wine, this is not the vineyard for you. So, um, I think it was Tony Sorter was his first buyer in that vineyard. And, and when he, when he told Tony that, and he said, yeah, that's right up my alley. So, and it's right up my alley. So this vineyard gets, is, is a lot more elegant and reserved style of, of Cabernet. I would say it's, you know, it's kind of that crossroads between elegance and power. And it's very balanced. And um, so it's, it's not a big, juicy, sweet, ripe kind of Cabernet. It's... It's it's elegant and powerful at the same time, and that I, and nice balance of acidity in there always. When you were talking, I lost track whether we were talking about wine or care and elegance of power. Elegance <laughs> of power is not does not describe you as well. Um, in my mind, it does. Um, well, how exciting and what a what a diverse portfolio. Um, the common thread, of course, is the integrity of where the wine came from and who raised it, um, and then really honoring all those efforts in the cellar and having your talented winemaker, Jennifer Williams, and having you um, on our shoulder, I'm sure. I'm sure you guys interact a whole lot, especially during blending trials and such like that, but also in the vineyard, and it's such a cohesive effort. Um, what, I, I could see how that makes you happy. It's hard work, but it's not really work if you're happy. Right, right. 
No, I'm, I'm, I'm blessed to be here and I'm blessed to be doing what I love to do. And, um, and I'm honored to be on your show and thank you so much for the invitation and I've had a blast talking about wine with you and, uh, life and hope to do more of it. Oh, likewise. This is, this has to be continued. The next one, perhaps we'll be so fortunate as to be face to face and, in front of wines and tasting as we're talking. I literally can't wait for that. You guys, um, please, especially during this difficult time, support the producers that you love, support small businesses. Really, this is your participation. This is your moment to shine because without you, none of our lives are possible. I hope you've been inspired and energized to pick up the phone or your paws and start moving the mouse and get to Ziata's website and do a little sleuthing and perhaps, you know, pick something for yourself for your dinner table. Um, but most importantly, take care of yourselves and each other. It's been such a pleasure to get to know you, Karen. Until next time. Same here. And thank you so much. And everybody be safe and be healthy and um, take care of yourselves. Thanks again for tuning in to the official podcast of Palette Exposure featuring Alona Thompson. We'll see you again next week.